The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And the Chris Jericho Rock and Wrestling Razor at Sea is back, baby. Triple whammy. Set sail October 21st from Miami to the Grand Bahama Island. Still cabins available. Go to JerichoCruise.com. Book your cabin and come enjoy the vacation of a lifetime. You'll get to hang out with Kurt Angle, Will Ospreay, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the Rock and Roll Express, Bully Ray, Dean Malenko, uh, among others, and a who's who of AEW, including Orange Cassidy, Dr. Britt Baker, DMD, Rebel, Jamie Hayter, Lance Archer, Jake Roberts, The Gun Club, The Chaos Project, Cole Cabana, Will Hobbs, Ricky Starks, Chris Daniels, Frank Kazarian. The lineup is stacked. Don't forget, it's the debut of Orange Jericho versus Ricky Starks and Will Hobbs. Uh, yes, that's right. You thought the pairing you never thought would happen, Chris Jericho and Orange Cassidy together for the first time and maybe only time ever. Uh, Joining the crazy, crazy lineup, Brad Williams is doing comedy along with Ryan Niemiller, Kate Quigley, Medusa's the guest cruise director, Striper, Fozzie, Quarantine, Rubik's Cube, Secret Saints, Paradise Kitty, Dave Spivak Project, uh, bringing the rock and roll, so many more bands. Uh, go to JerichoCruise.com and get your cabin now. You still have a little bit of time before it's too late. And tickets also for Fozzie Save the World Tour have been selling out fast as well. few stops left on this tour. FozzieRock.com for all ticket information. We're in Nashville, Tennessee at Basement East tonight, uh, the, the, the Thursday, September 30th. Then tomorrow, Friday in Canton, uh, Atlanta, Georgia area. The Tampa Bay Rock Fest, 98 Rock Fest on Saturday and then we hit Charlotte on Sunday, and we are uh, continuing around the horn, Columbia, South Carolina, and then we still got a few more dates after that. Go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket and VIP info. And then we're headed to Europe starting uh, November 29th in uh, Liverpool, the Cavern Club, famous place that the Beatles made famous. And these tickets are almost all sold out. When I say almost all sold out, we are about 85% sold for the whole tour. So go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket information. Get them while you still can for the UK and Ireland and Northern Ireland because they are going to all sell out. All right. Speaking of huge crowds, there's a new documentary on Netflix called Woodstock 99 Peace, Love, and Rage. All about the Woodstock 99 Festival. For those who don't know, Woodstock 99 was in celebration of the 30th anniversary of the original Woodstock and put on by Woodstock co-founder Michael Lang, veteran promoter John Scher. An estimated 400,000 people showed up at the Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York in August of 99 for the three-day festival, but it became notorious. It wasn't about peace and love. It was about violence and rage. 
like the title says, fires, riots, sexual assaults, lack of food and water, uh, filth conditions. Uh, so many crazy things happened. And this new documentary attributes the violence of Woodstock 99 to an angry white boy, misogynist mob mentality fueled by the mostly uh, heavy rock, uh, emo, uh, new metal uh, lineup of bands. Uh, today on the show, I got two people who are actually at Woodstock 99. My longtime Fozzie manager, Mark Willis, making his talk as Jericho debut. He was running security at the event. And my longtime Talk as Jericho producer, Stacey Para. She was working Westwood One's live radio broadcast of the festival. They were both on site and privy eyewitnesses to the carnage that took place. They share their stories of what it was like for them at Woodstock 99, starting right here on Talk is Jericho. So the big documentary that's being discussed right now uh, is uh, on HBO. It's called Woodstock 99, Peace, Love and Rage. And it discusses kind of the lunacy of what was supposed to be the kind of the epitome of peace and love in the third Woodstock Festival. And it's interesting to me because I know that uh, Mark Willis, who's been Fozzie's manager and a business partner of mine on the cruise and many other things for over 20 years, was actually there. And so when I decided to do this podcast, Stacy Para, who's been my producer on this show for eight years for every episode I've ever done of Talk is Jericho, was also there. So I thought we can kill two birds with one stone and do a really cool podcast about this crazy documentary and have two of my longtime collaborators make their Talk is Jericho debut. So now you guys are really going to be superstars. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, though, watching this documentary, it kind of reminded me a lot of the Firefest documentary when I saw it. And I had happened to meet a guy who was actually there and kind of hear his side of the, uh, of the documentary and his side of the experiences and see if that kind of jived, because as we know, every documentary kind of has an agenda and Mark, f first and foremost, let's just talk about this. First of all, because Woodstock 94, I remember um, was, I was living in Tennessee at the time, which was the, was the first place I ever really experienced MTV. Cause I grew up in Canada and I remember Woodstock 94 was just like, it was, it was really a whole different vibe than 99. I, I can specifically remember the classic Green Day moment of everybody in the crowd throwing mud onto the stage and Green Day throwing it back. But it wasn't kind of a mean, violent thing. It was just kind of a fun, you know, like spraying, you know, beer in each other's faces at a party or something along those lines. So there was definitely two separate vibes between 94 and 99. Would you agree, Mark? That was the first year of Music Midtown in Atlanta. And it was a huge event that did 100,000 people. Jazz Fest was coming up. So the, the, the land, you know, the festivals were being born in, in, in and around that time. And suddenly 100,000 people was accepted and, and people were loving it. It was the new thing in the U.S. In Europe, it had been pretty popular model for a while. But, you know, there they don't have arenas for basketball teams and things to do shows. So they were already doing festivals. 94 Woodstock came along and it was with that Woodstock legacy name. And, and you know, people were excited about it. And then you saw the pictures and it, it kind of reminded you a little bit of 99. The mud, the drugs, mm -hmm. you know, the throw and the but it wasn't. It was violent. It wasn't, you didn't walk away from it going, it was anything to be afraid of. It actually, I think, enticed promoters to kind of want to get into this model even more, which led to 99, I think. 
And it's interesting, too, because obviously Woodstock in 69 was was created by Michael Lang, who I believe was just a, you know, early 20s guy and created this festival that got completely out of hand for him. And I think he lost a lot of money, you know, in that time frame, but then created this legendary, iconic festival. 25 years later, he does part two. Uh, was part two... A, a success uh, enough to lead to part three as far as financially um, from a vibe standpoint, from a, from a word of mouth standpoint. I think it was, think about it. They made a documentary out of 69 that really kind of um, glorified and romanticized the good parts of the festival. Look, if you'd have given me the, the same footage, I could have delivered to you uh, a documentary very similar to the HBO documentary in 99 from 69. So, I mean, you know, in 69, they showed all the cool music moments, but, you know, they weren't showing the infrastructure broken down. They weren't showing the mass overdoses. They weren't showing the tents being burnt down in the name of profiteering by, you know, a number of factions that were there. So when he did 94, I think 94 actually came off pretty well. Um, but again, one of the first things they did, Chris, was tear the fences down. So again, he, you know, he couldn't really control mm-hmm. a lot of the gate. And so once again, here he was, I think, you know, Michael Lang was like, okay, we pulled it off after 25 years. Let's do it again. And let's do it really big this time. And I'm sure in the back of his mind, it was like, man, what do I got to do to really profit from this? Mm-hmm. Now, Stacy, can you explain kind of, first of all, why you were there and what role you were, you were playing there? And also, too, where exactly did Woodstock 99 take place? Woodstock 99 was in Rome, New York, upstate New York. I had never been to upstate New York prior to going. I went not as a concert goer. I was working for Westwood One at the time, and Westwood One had the radio broadcast rights and was doing three live broadcasts from the festival, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, from I think we started at two o'clock and we would take our broadcast live to midnight. So I was part of that crew. And my specific job for Westward One at that time for that event was I was in our VO RV. So we converted an RV into a recording booth so that we could have some of the radio jocks that we'd partner with come in and record like band introductions and throws to commercial break and welcome back. And if there was a problem, they could fill for time. And so I literally was in that VO booth with them to kind of capture this stuff. And this is, you know, pre kind of modern technology. So we were literally recording on reel to reel. I was cutting tape with a razor blade Hmm. and handing it out the door to a runner who would run it to the broadcast (laughs) truck, which was really only about 20 feet away. And they would have to rack it up and play it back. And, you know, I would I had a walkie talkie because even though we were only 20 feet away, there weren't cell phones. So the truck would be walking to me. We need three (laughs) minutes of fill. So I would grab whoever was around. We had partnered with like K-Rock New York and BCN in Boston and YSP in Philly. And so there was always someone mingling around to cut tracks, grab them, cut tracks, go in. So I didn't actually get to be out in the crowd too much, but did get to see a, a, a little bit. For instance, 
Metallica, I think, closed. Oh, and I should say where we were located. We were in the media compound. So the media compound was behind a giant chain link fence on this Air Force base. And there was an east stage and a west stage. They were roughly two miles apart from each other, like one end of the tarmac to the other end of the tarmac. And we were almost right in the middle. So we were about a mile from each stage. We had staff situated on both stages because again, you know, technology didn't exist like it does now. And so they had walkie talkies and would communicate back with us what bands coming up, if there were changes, if things were running long so that we could plan accordingly from the broadcast. And so that's kind of how we were communicating. And so in between things, I was able to sort of run out of our compound because we had built a little compound with the mobile recording unit, a couple of RVs, generators, porta potties to wall us off. And we were surrounded on the outside by other radio stations that were there broadcasting live as well. And so you could run out and stand on someone else's truck and see. So you could see both stages, obviously from a distance. We had binoculars and stuff. So we just watched. We were slightly a hair closer to the east stage. Um, but I stood out there for Metallica the last like 30 minutes of Metallica because our broadcast quit at midnight and the concert was running so over schedule that we were able to catch that last 30 minutes because they were still playing. When you're talking about East Stage and West Stage, there was about a two and a half mile distance between the two of them. Yes. We had bikes and we had vans that we right. brought okay. inside the compound that we could kind of move back and forth to get to because it was really, you couldn't, if there was a cable problem or a tech problem, you couldn't run down to the stage to fix it. So um, someone would have to drive stuff down or bite something <laughs> down. Yeah. So yeah, with the walkie talkies, the walkie talkies were the best. So, and we also had to use the walkie talkies just to communicate within the compound from, you know, one of our recording trucks to the next, which were only about 20 feet away. But so I always had a walkie talkie because I always had to know like if they needed something, and some of the things I heard on the walkie talkie stick with me. Like, and I saw one of them in, I actually saw two of them in the documentary. So I do remember hearing on the walkie talkie from our guy that was down at the stage. Oh my God, Carson Daly's going to have to run. They are throwing everything that they can at him. He's going to have to run. They are <laughs> killing him. So I remember hearing that happen. And the other thing, not so funny, that was actually in the moment, on the walkie talkie really scary is they radioed back to us when Jonathan from corn collapsed after the set. Um, it came over the walkie talkie is, mm. Oh my God, Jonathan Davis just dropped. Jonathan Davis collapsed and not having a visual and not having context. Like you're thinking, Oh gosh. So then you're kind of stuck to the walkie talkie to say, is he okay? Like, are we, are we cutting to something else just because something catastrophic has happened at this event? Mm -hmm. Like just in that context, I remember that moment. I remember hearing that come over the walkies. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. 
Let's pull back a bit, Mark. How did you get involved, and what exactly was your job there at Woodstock? So I was um, I was involved in Music Midtown, and the site manager for Music Midtown in Atlanta, his name was John Conk, and John became the site manager for Michael Lang up at Woodstock, and he asked me to do to you know if I could go up and work it and. I said, yeah, what do you need me to do? And he was really vague and he didn't really know. He just said, look, and at the time I was, you know, 35, I was bulletproof. It was invincible. I I would do anything. I was like a utility (laughs) guy. So I could run a whole, you know, a hundred thousand person event, but I also go in and, and the more crazy it was, the more I was into it. So I didn't hear from him. And, and, and it was the, the, and it was about the time and you'll, Chris, you'll appreciate this because it was Jul- on July the 7th, I got a phone call from him and it was, hey, I need you and a, a team of four people up to Woodstock. How soon can you be here? And I'm like, how soon do you need me there? And he said, look out your window. There's a helicopter landed right now. <laughs> of course. And of course, wow. there wasn't. <laughs> but he was like, look, dude, I need you to be at the airport. And it was like three days. Well, that night I had a concert uh, with a band that that had asked me to do a show called Fozzie Osborne. And it was at the Marietta Strand. (laughs) (laughs) It it was our first show. Our first show ever. Our first show together. And then you had the next night in Spartanburg. And then two days later, I was on a plane to New York. And that's where my, that's where my duty started. And what, and I still didn't really know what we were doing. And I was talking to Stacy about it. <laughs> and I got there and he basically said, look, we need you to secure the back of the air force base. This was at Griffiths air force base he said, you're going to be responsible for all non, you know, all the back of the house, none of the front of the house, none of the audience, but we are going to have the biggest broadcast in the world. It's like 130 countries are going to broadcast and Westwood one and all of the other vehicles uh, and workers. And you're going to be responsible for it. So they stick us in this guardhouse. Okay. And there's four of us. Well, immediately I was bored. And so I was always around John and John Conk was a, a, he was a, a, a very large man very imposing. We we got on real well at Music Midtown, so he knew I'd do anything. And, and I, you know, I got in Michael's ear and, and, and let me know what you need, anything you want. And so here's what people don't, don't realize, what happened to, to Woodstock to really start the, the put the wheel in motion to, to, to the opening day. And there was a fish concert 65 miles away okay the weekend before okay Hmm. and it was the camp oswego two-day music festival and it was in volney new york it was 65 miles to the west of rome new york and it ended on sunday night it's an hour away fish then went up into canada well thousands of fish fans went Hey, there's Rome, New York right there. And it's only, they're opening on Thursday. We can get in, right? So they had, and of course, nobody knew this. Radios are starting to go off all through the night going, you know, Monday morning, Sunday night into Monday morning. I, I get, I get back to the base and there's 
there's thousands of kids camped along this impenetrable fence, right? Well, the fence was up, but we were still building a city on the inside of this thing, which as Stacy's referred to was miles long. And um, I think we parked like 55,000 vehicles per runway. So that's how massive this thing was. And it was a B-52 bomber base. So they were huge runways. And these kids, I mean, dude, they had nothing to do. They had nobody. I mean, and, and, and security that was there was local security. And they dealt with it and they dealt with it. And by Wednesday, I, I got a call and the call said, we have no security. Our local security has left. Oh, my gosh. So they tell my team, dude, go out there and help us sweep the site we, because we're still there's huge machines still running and now it's getting down to we're in the last 48 hours man so machinery's flying it's hectic it's chaos and we got fish fans running everywhere so that became my new job was helping to run down and, and get the kids out and and keep them out and meanwhile, they said, hey, we're, security's coming up. It's going to be here, you know, Wednesday, late, late Wednesday into Thursday. And I was standing there when the buses from New York rolled in with John Cock, and we watched the security get off. And they were all would get off the buses and they would stand in line. And we were looking at all the colors that were on these security dudes. And it was gang colors for some of them. And I, I looked at John and I, I said, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to need security for our security. And that's what I saw is I saw that our security that had, you know, coming to save the day had, had really just had been brought in and I, they didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. So that's what started. I like literally knew at that point that while we were sitting in the meeting and everybody, you know, every day was, kind of patting each other on the backs. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. I knew from having been involved with very large events that this had trouble written all over it, and I was really nervous about it. So that's, that's how I came to, you know, to work for the event and suddenly was involved in many other aspects of it, which I wanted to be. Like I said, man, you tell, give me a job, send me out. And then, and that's what happened. And, right. and then as the, things began to, deter, to deteriorate during the event, I would be sent out into the chaos to handle very specific matters, sensitive matters that involved money or safety or things like that. And it really deteriorated very quickly. Right. Well, before we, before we, before we get into that, let's, let's discuss a few things. So Stacy, for you, um, cause everyone's talking about the staying in the tents and on the asphalt and how hot it was because of the asphalt. This is not a campground. This is like camping, you know, on a street or on a driveway. Where were you guys staying? Did you have special kind of journalist quarters behind the stage? Like you mentioned, we were really lucky because Westwood one, had known they were going for a long time. So they were actually able to secure um, a bunch of rooms for us at a motel in Rome. So we had, I think, five or six rooms at this little strip motel in Rome. Gotcha. And we were able to go back there like late at night after 
bands were finished playing and like take showers and catch a nap and stuff. But yeah, we were lucky. I know a lot of the people around us, like a lot of the radio stations around us were all housed in the barracks because that was an air force base. So they were all housed in the barracks there and they kept coming up and trying to bribe us to use our hotel room showers and stuff. Um, and then say, if any, is anyone <laughs> sleeping there can have your key because the barracks obviously were not air conditioned. And I swear it was a hundred degrees and like a hundred percent humidity. I've never been in anything like that in my life, but yeah. So I was really lucky in that sense. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We talked about this earlier, but let's kind of, as, as we start with talking about the festival, one of the big issues in 69, and you can see it in the documentary, is that they sold, I don't know, 10,000 tickets and there was 300,000 people there because people basically just walked down the side of the highway and, you know, kicked open the fences and just started walking in. Uh, and they so lost a lot of their revenue on that. And the same thing happened in 94. Uh, but he, Michael Lang, the organizer of, of the festival, had a different idea on how to keep people up for 99. Explain that. Well, he did the impenetrable uh, fence, as they called it. It was the longest concert fence that had ever been built. I think, man, I don't remember the exact length that it's, but it's, it's on record. It's five or six miles. This thing was crazy. <laughs> they used a whole hangar. Like when we got there, my team got there weeks before there was in a hangar, they were painting all the murals. They were, they were beautiful. Like they had thousands of kids in there working. It was cool. So man, they built a 10 foot wall of plywood and then they put a, a big metal rails in between and they went 10 feet back. It was a moat. Okay. So if you got over the 10 foot wall, you were then trapped between that 10 foot wall and the chain link fence. It was like a 10 foot moat that had a thousand pound concrete block anchoring every 20 feet. And, and that's what they created was the impenetrable fortress, right? But this time, instead of breaking the fences to get in, they ended up breaking the fences to get out. Wow. Okay, so so you are kind of uh, sniffing out that there's going to be some issues. And Stacy, you're behind the stage kind of dealing with the bands and all that other sort of stuff. When do things start breaking down on your end? Because like you said, we've all watched the documentary and the documentary kind of paints the picture that it was angry, you know, white young men uh, that just got too caught up in the in, in the mosh, so to speak, and wanted to start destroying. Was that kind of what, what you started seeing, Mark? Or what, what did, when did you start seeing things breaking down where you thought, we're going to have a problem here? Well, we knew it. I knew it on Friday. Uh, I think all of us knew it on Friday. But we got through it on Friday and we were, you know, having the after meetings. But Chris, we knew on Friday when we got into Saturday, things began again. Our, our security had just turned their shirts inside out and walked off at that point. So we knew that we were like the Falcons. It was 28 to three with a minute left in the third quarter. We were just playing for defense at that point. We were just trying to hang on. That's all we could do because the benefit mm -hmm. of being in the middle of nowhere is that you can 
you can have a big concert like this and, and get away with it uh, as opposed to an inner city thing. But the downfall is once your infrastructure breaks down, you're in the middle of nowhere. You can't recreate it. You can't get it. So I knew because of what I was having to already deal with on uh, early Saturday, um, that we were in big, big trouble. I, of course, didn't envision what was going to happen Sunday night. Uh, I don't think anybody could, but I knew we were in trouble. What were you thinking, Stacy, when all this started? I mean, you're kind of there, not with this kind of knowledge that, that Mark has. Uh, was it just another crazy day for you, or were you starting to have some ominous vibes? Ominous vibes on Friday, for sure, because Friday I got sent out into the crowd with Bradley J from BCN, and we were told to just go talk to people because they wanted to do a feature, like, how's your concert experience? <laughs> and we went out there, and people literally were telling us, if you give me water, I'll talk to you, and you can you use me in your, <laughs> in your recording, oh. in your broadcast. And we were like, oh, my gosh. Like, it must be bad if you're asking me to give you water in order to talk to us. So we thought that was a really bad, ominous sign. Um, the other thing too, and small thing, but just made me wonder two things. One, we had a little, very small medical tent that I think was just meant to service media if there was an issue. I know that the event had a super large manned medical tent down by one of the stages. But Friday afternoon, we started seeing them bring concert goers to the small little media medical tent that was like manned by two EMTs. And they were all apparently suffering from mm. heat exhaustion, dehydration, and pretty soon they're just bodies on the concrete there. I mean, they kept bringing them, the two EMTs. I remember watching one of them say, like, we can't take anymore. And then we started seeing stretchers coming. Um, and wow. I, don't, I don't know, like, where they were being taken to. But that started happening Friday. The water thing started happening Friday. And on Friday, I got sent on a bicycle to bike into Rome, New York three mile each way trip to buy bottles of vodka because our team wanted to try to bribe the facilities and sanitation to come take care of the porta potties in the media back area. And I thought, wow, it's Friday. And if that's happening in the media area, I cannot imagine what is happening mm -hmm. out in the concert. So Friday, we were all starting to talk about this. This is bad. This is bad. And just to step in, they were saying that water uh, was $4 a bottle, which, I mean, that's pretty much a concert. It's just the way it is. But there was a big shortage of it. And also, too, not a lot of showers, but there was fresh water that then people were taking showers in the fresh water. And then they were busting open the pipes to try and get to the water, which caused a lot of mud. And then, of course, the porta potties were overflowed, and then that got crazy. So the porta potties were um, uh, mixing with the water and the mud. And it's one of the parts of the movie where they said that the kids thought they were, you know, rolling around in the mud, but they were really rolling around in human excrement. Which, like, how stoned do you got to be to not smell that? <laughs> smell the difference. <laughs> But Mark, so now you're on the other side of the fence, kind of in in the wild, so to speak. And what are some of the things that you're seeing as Friday moves into Saturday and things keep getting a little bit worse? So one of the first things that I had to deal with was the, uh, yes, the, the 
they broke a water pipe and the water pipe mixed in and then they started dumping the porta potties. So all of a sudden, so we had a, uh, we had somebody go in and, and attempt to fix it. They took in a golf cart. The golf cart got probably inside out into the mud, the, the shit field for, and that's what it was. And it got stuck. Yeah. And so we had a command and control center. So we were inside the, the, Air Force Base, we could see what was going on. And a lot of it, you know, we had the MTV picture that was going on. Um, we had other cameras and other viewpoints. And we got a call that the a golf cart had been taken over by the public. So they sent me to retrieve it. And me and a couple of guys go out there. And we probably had to walk a, over a football field's length from the, the break in the fence that we were able to access the inside and go towards the golf cart. There must've been 12 kids on this thing. I mean, it was, it was, a, and it was one of those um, workhorses. So it's the kind of golf carts got a bench in the front backs a bucket. They were piled on this thing and they were sitting on it. And of course it's stuck. It's dead. I get there. Now I've got my, Woodstock shirt, my credentials, my radio. I come walking up. Hey, how you doing? And all of a sudden, they come after me. They come at me. They're they're their guy punches me in the back of the head. Mm. All of a sudden, I'm fighting for my life. Oh my gosh! Uh, now at this point, I, I will. I had been taking ninjutsu for six years, and I'd always wondered, you know, does it really work? I'd never been in a fight. I mean, not since I had started. I mean, not since, you know, grammar school. And all of a sudden, man, oh, I was being cool. And Dan, I mean, the look in their eyes, like this was there. They were taking this cuff cart and I was the authority figure. Wow. And I was fighting for my life. I've been using my radio and I realized, wow, very quickly, trust your training. Ninjutsu does work. And I get free, but I'm running for my life now. And they're chasing me. And I, I get through the fence. They close the fence. I go to my boss, John Conk, and I, I tell him what's going on. What do you want to do, John? Do you want to give him? Do we just leave it there? And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, I don't believe in leaving the keys to the prison with the prisoners. We're going to take that golf cart back. Mm-hmm. So we gathered up the side ops guys wow. and we took a wall. And the, but this time I told everybody, look, take your shirts off, take your credentials off, take your radio off. And then we walked out there into that shit field and put it all over us. It was the only way that we could blend in Wow! because we had to get that golf cart back. So in order to disguise ourselves, we just put it all over us and we pulled a lull in there. Anybody, a lull is like a really, really, really big forklift. It's what they build those, a lot of the stages with. And the guy, we had a guy and, and so he brings the lull in and he doesn't get far at all. And they jump in and a guy from the festival is now on the lull headed for the crowd. Uh, you mean a fan? A, a fan is a fan. Oh my gosh. A fan gets on, knocks the guy out, and takes off in this thing. Now, we're chasing the lull. 
we we get him off, we get the lull back, and we and now everybody realized this is really serious. And so we get more people and more people. And now we've got the the lull operators are pissed. And and, and all the site people are pissed and they're there. And so we got a winch and we backed it in this time. They backed it in. We, we, we kind of casually walked with the winch towards the golf cart. They didn't really notice us because we looked like them. And at the last second, I threw that winch, the hook on the back of the golf cart, yelled the guy and the guy hit the gas and that golf cart came flying out of the mud and every, and the people just scattered and the golf cart comes down and there's a guy laying there and it rolls over him. He didn't get hurt because it, there's so much mud that he just sinks down under the weight of it. And they, and <laughs> so we, much shit and mud. So, <laughs> and, and we pull the golf cart out and, and that's, that began kind of the oh shit moment of man, we're, we really are in trouble. You know, it's crazy because it's almost like you're, you're, you're talking about the walking dead. Like if someone goes into the zombie city outside the gates where they're all just gathered around and you got to put like the, the, the zombie guts around, you know, like Andrew Lincoln did in walking dead to kind of blend in with the zombies. But that, that's kind of what, what it's becoming. I've got a question that I'm going to ask a little bit later on, but uh, let's talk about, uh, uh, so things are starting to get a little bit out of control now. Um, who was playing on Friday? Cause I think Limp Biscuit was one of kind of the insiders of a lot of these things. And that was pretty much on a Saturday, right? If I'm just checking it out, um, Limp Biscuit was Saturday. So Friday night band wise, Friday was corn. Fr- Friday night was corn. You said corn and Bush played Friday night, but it wasn't completely crazy then. No, no, it, it wasn't that I it recall. Was hot. I mean, it was crazy mm-hmm. from the, it was the, I mean, they were mosh and corn put on it. I mean, Jonathan put on an amazing show. Yeah. And the crowd was into it, man. And it was their real first big night. Yeah, there was the, so the craziness was actually a good vibe. You know, I say there was, I've heard 220,000, 400,000, I don't know, somewhere in between is what the number was. But man, I swear to you, I, I think what I experienced was there might have been 2,000 bad ones. And, and 200,000 good ones right. like Friday, man, I think people were still trying to help each other because it was so hot and, and people were just trying to figure it out, man. And the bands were good and they were rocking. And like I said, we got done Friday night and the vibe was like, okay, man, wow, we got through that. Okay. Tomorrow we live to fight another day. And then we got into Saturday. So when did it start breaking down from a band standpoint then? If Friday was cool, and then, of course, Saturday starts with the Tragically Hip and Alanis Morissette, which are two great Canadian artists. Of course, everybody's probably thanking each other and saying sorry because it's Canada. But when does it start getting completely crazy with the uh, with the bands on Saturday night? Well, I remember hearing stuff about, sorry, about Limp Biscuit on the walkies again, just because, you know, we had the walkies and the stage crew down there was saying um, that, the crowd was getting a little crazy and they were ripping things apart and um, that Limp Bizkit might kind of be egging them on a little bit. And that was the first kind of thing that I'd heard. And that was just, you know, again, walkie report. And I was, I was taken to the stage. Was Limp Bizkit egging them on Mark? Yeah. Cause I was, I was 
called and told to bring my team to join um, you know, the rest of the people that were, we were all going to, to the stage to remove Limp Biscuit if necessary. Meaning? That it was, he was out of control, that they felt like, you know, they were in, in, inciting the crowd and that if he didn't calm it down, we were taken to the stage to remove the band if necessary. Wow. So do you feel that he calmed the crowd down? According to the documentary, he did not. Yeah, no, he, I mean, look, he, you know, he's a, he's a rock star, right? He's going to do his thing. He, it, it really, I mean, was it his job to, to calm it down? I mean, that's a morality thing. I don't know, but you know, he didn't, he was, dude, I mean, you get that, you, Chris, you know, the energy of a crowd that big, you've done big festivals. Sure. These, I mean, there was an expanse of humanity that was so far, you couldn't see the end of it. And, and man, the, they, they were going crazy and it was fueling these guys. So I'm not, I don't excuse anything and nor did I get a vote on what anybody did, but he was in the moment. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Mark, I mean, just to kind of scream through this quickly, I mean, Limp Bizkit and Rage Against the Machine had a different type of energy to them. And Metallica, maybe 10 years prior, might have been that kind of riotous uh, rebellion. But it seemed like this is kind of more of a, I'm, not, I mean, I'm saying this as a compliment, more, almost more of a corporate Metallica who understands what's at stake. Did, did the crowd, were they still going like animalistic Lord of the Flies when Metallica was on? Or did they calm down and enjoy the music a little bit more at that point? No, it was... It was, uh, I think we were, we were pretty much at a point where I think the, that, that really was when the crowd knew that they controlled everything. Ah, gotcha. That there was no response. There was no reaction to their actions and there hadn't been for days. And that's why I say, I think, you know, they tested and tested and the the 2000 bad ones kind of tested the system. And when there's no reaction to, to bad action. I don't care what style of music. I don't care what demographic in, in under those conditions where you're living in swallow, which is truly what this was at this point. Jeez, I yeah. think it's going to deteriorate. And I, I, I hear this angry white male thing over and over, but I honestly think it doesn't matter. You put any style of music out there and you put them in those conditions and there's no one coming a, to stop you from doing wrong or to help you if you're in trouble, that's the result you're going to get. That's what I think, too. I, I just think it was it was so unbearably hot. If you were there attending the concert, you had no relief. I mean, you, you it was difficult to come by water. There was no shade there at all. I mean, you're just out there baking. It's I just can't imagine. And, and let me you know just tell you, so for the people who worked there, Chris, they opened up subdivisions, thousands of homes that this used to house, this massive Air Force base. When they opened up the home, now the homes had been, I think they had been uh, vacated three to five years earlier. So 
they these people that were bussed up and asked to work arrived and were put into these homes. I was in the nice, the nice barracks, okay, the officers' barracks, where I had no bed, I had no AC, I had no hot water, but I had keys to my doors, and that was a that was a huge thing. These homes, these hundreds and to, or thousand homes that everybody was in, they were put in to live and for you know for a couple of weeks. And they again, they didn't have a lot of them didn't have water, electricity, beds. The ones that did didn't have locks on their doors. And so immediately what happened was they would go to work and, and they were coming back and their stuff was gone. And people weren't going to work because they were staying. And it was, man, so it, it literally was a fight for survival. And so a lot of the security, for instance, just didn't go to work. They just left. It wasn't worth it. And there was, there was you know, really no way to fix it. The event organizers did send out in advance very clear words. This is like camping, folks. But you're going to be in a house. But it's like camping. Well, the message didn't get across. So, you know, I, I think that, again, it was 100 degrees. And at night, it was 90. I remember I got one of those Marlboro camping bags with my Marlboro Miles back then, and it was a red bag. And I woke up the first morning and that was covered in red, <laughs> red dye, because I had just laid on the floor sweating. And you can't get rest. You can't. You, you just never feel right in those conditions. Right. And you couldn't escape it because we didn't have air conditioning. We didn't have fans. We didn't have anything. And you got to remember, I had the nicer quarters. Stacy, you lucked out with the, the hotel, but man, you had to fight to get in and out every day. We couldn't get in and out. So you yeah. were literally, we had a van. And even this, I mean, maybe now thinking about it, this maybe should have been a little bit of an ominous sign, but we flew in Wednesday. We had to report to the site Thursday morning. And this is technically really before things were getting going. And we were using the back of the house entrance that was supposed to only be if you're working there, you go through this which particular was my road, entrance. which was, yeah. So I'm thinking maybe I met you, <laughs> but <laughs> that morning our crew took one of the vans from the hotel and we're just trying to drive to make our call time and traffic in Rome. And then specifically on that road that was only supposed to be back house access wasn't moving. We sat there, I think, for a half an hour, didn't move. And we had to actually abandon the vehicle and walk, walk the mm. rest of the way and leave it there and send someone back to move it later, like pulled it off to the side. But that was just to get in the back of the house. So I can't imagine what you were dealing with. And then, yeah, so we just we couldn't get back and forth to the hotel rooms easily. So even though we had them, it was tough to use them. There's there's two questions I want to ask. Uh, one of them, the documentary paints a picture that uh, it's actually pretty. <laughs> I, I didn't appreciate how they did that about talking about how a lot of the, 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 the girls had their tops off. Um, a, like you mentioned, it was 100 degrees. B, they painted it like it was almost every second girl in the place. And almost like it was their uh, their choice to, to not have a top on allowed them to be groped, which any guy in a pit with any type of respect and morals knows that it doesn't matter if the girl has a naked or a suit of armor. You just don't do that. 
Was there a lot of girls with no tops on, or was, were they really focusing in on the few that were, or was it just so fucking hot that girls just went, I don't care? Well, I, look, I, I went through the uh, they, at night, Chris, they had a, a rave going on, like an all night rave. So I, I remember going through there one night, and the and the biblical term Sodom and Gomorrah went through my head because everywhere I looked, it was full on sex, just <laughs> mayhem. But wow. they were, you know, these were the kids that were, you know, do, that's what it was. That's what they're, that's their thing at four in the morning. But during the day when you were walking around, yeah, you saw some of the girls, but, but the camera crew for this documentary, I think they were looking for boobs because, you know, you could tell that that was a major focus. Sure, I right. didn't see the, the constants that they showed in the documentary. Um, I saw them on TV. I could see them walking through the crowd. I didn't really experience that. I agree. Cause I would be sent out in the crowd too, to like, you know, get the, what's your concert experience, like, et cetera. And I can't recall seeing any, honestly, the only thing I did see is like what Mark said. Yeah. The, um, the all hours rave, was the hanger that during the day served as the emerging artists stage, which a funny aside about that is that hanger was buzzing. I mean, bands that even to this day, I went back just to look and no offense to them, but I don't recognize a single name. None of them. None, None of them. them. None of them. And I look too. it was buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. And it was packed all the time. And it took forever for us to figure out that, Oh, because it's shade. Like, you're not yes. out in the sun. So oh. <laughs> it was crazy. But yeah, but we went a yeah. couple times to the um to the all night rain. So 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 what you're saying, Stacey, is that Linda Rutherford <laughs> and Celtic Fire, King Conga, Young and Fabulous, and Mo Logren were getting great reactions, not because they were awesome, they were awesome. musicians, but because they were playing in they the were shade. They were awesome, they were awesome. <laughs> it was it was a great place to sleep though. Yeah. I mean, you could you could lay on the cool concrete and just be out of the sun. I mean, it that was the big draw. <laughs> yeah, and I remember when we would go out and stand on some of the other broadcast tracks so we could see the stage. And it was literally right up against this big chain link fence that separated sort of the media compound from the concert goers. But always along that fence, always people having sex. So that was the nudity, like full on sex right there. But walking around in the crowd, I I never just saw topless women. The other question I was going to ask you, Mark, is why didn't they just shut the thing down? And I mean, obviously, you guys can't do that with your minimal security force, but you could call the National Guard or you could call the Army just to come and shut the whole thing down. Was that ever something you guys discussed? Well, no, it, it, it's what we did on Sunday. On Sunday, because that's that's right. why I was I gave the twenty-eight to three minute left in the third quarter Atlanta Falcons in the Super Bowl analogy because you were just playing for defense. And I think Saturday night, gotcha. we knew going into Sunday, I knew on my team and, and with what I had seen, God, one more day, just one more day. We could get out of this thing. Just one more. Like We've done amazing to get to the last day. But early in the day, Seven Dust was playing earlier in the afternoon and an ambulance went out. Somebody got hurt and they started pelting the ambulance and they rolled it. Wow. They rolled the ambulance and no one, the police were like, we, we're not going out there. 
at this point, the crowd had taken control and it was early in the day. So um, that's when I think the calls were made. I have, I didn't make the calls, but I, I was told because we housed, we secured the back of the facility. I was told, you know, to basically hold the line and that there were going to be police lining up. They had called as far away as New York City because they needed to amass wow. as enough police to get. But it was going to take six hours to get all as many police as they needed to get to the facility. And I and they lined up and they were lined up. I could look out my gate and I could see them line and they would, you know, the road went around the curve and you couldn't see them anymore. Um, and I never re- didn't realize how big it was until, you know, 12, 31 o'clock, whatever it was, that they all turned their lights on and we let them in. And it was the longest line I've ever seen, but it took them six hours to call in. And I, I'm going to force. I'm going to guess that it was the Air Force, because I think the Air Force ended up locking me, my team, all of us into the, the compound. And they said, we're not you're not coming out until we we declare the situation safe. And I don't know, Stacy, if you saw these, but these vehicles came out of somewhere. Those were the biggest. Did you see them? I didn't see them. They were these massive and it wasn't a tank. But it was like earth movers, but they were these monstrous vehicles that just came out of nowhere. And there were two of them, and they sat right by those those military uh, compounds to secure them, locked us in. And the police came in and, and did a sweep, and they just swept everyone into the campgrounds. Um, and that was that. So they did, Chris. They didn't. It wasn't the National Guard, but it was the. Uh, New York State Patrol, I believe. I was standing on top of a truck watching the Chili Peppers and standing there and we saw sort of at first small glowing and we're like, something on fire? Mm -hmm. And it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and popping up in more and more places in the crowd. And then the thing that really scared me, and I think this is almost when we kind of jumped and ran, is some of the vendor trucks, like the refrigerated trucks, they started exploding around us. Mm. So there were fires, the trucks started exploding, and maybe this is right before the sweep. I know they, the Chili Peppers had they had stopped playing and were off, and throngs of concert goers were coming toward the media fence. I think maybe trying to get out or something so they were coming toward the fence so we jumped down and we ran back to the compound and that's when they were screaming all that they were screaming to all of us come inside the walls and so they were amassing a lot of the radio people and the media people that were around to come inside westwood one's compound tent and they were kind of making a perimeter of the larger male staff um, and telling us all to stay there and they were trying to kind of pack up and secure equipment and they were trying to figure out how are we all getting out of here at that point. Well, let me just just to jump in. There's something, you know, once again, coming from the, from the best of intentions of the peacemongers or whatever it was. They wanted to have a candlelight vigil. Uh, so they're literally handing out candles. And I'm not sure if they're handing out lighters or matches, too, but whatever. And during the Peppers, first of all, flees completely naked, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Like, they always used to wear the... the 
socks, but this time he's completely naked. But there's fire everywhere, and he says it's apocalypse now. I think Anthony does, but I'm literally thinking this is Lord of the Flies, and Mark has alluded to this a few times. The fans, the the, the concert goers had nothing, uh, no consequences. So now they're taking over the entire site and they're turning into savages where they're losing control of their inhibitions and just becoming psychos. And you can see that during the Pepper set because I went back and watched it on YouTube. Peppers played great. They were awesome. But you see the crowd and it's like, holy shit, what the f*** is going on here? It's literally almost like looking into hell. I mean, I don't know how you saw that, Mark, but from the stage, it definitely looked that way. At that point, I was sent out to try to help help the people with the money in the tents. They were tearing the, the beer tents, the concession tents, food tents down. They were tearing them apart. There was, of course, money in there that belonged to the festival. We were doing what we could to go assist uh, to get that money back. And I remember at one point, the Lord of the Fives analogy really, really comes to roost because it was in a tent. The tent was coming down. I remember the chaos. And it be, and when you get into a situation like that, where they're coming at you from every direction, and, and I was obviously there trying to get something they wanted away from them, uh, which was the money. They're, they're, you don't know who, you, you have no friends. You have no friends at that point when everything is coming at you from every direction. And I really remember grabbing a pipe. It was a pipe that was part of the structure was being torn down. And that I used that pipe to get me and these people out of there. But you, you couldn't even swing the pipe because it was you were so there was so I mean, people were diving over us trying to get the product they were going after the beer they were in this just looting moment. completely just looting everything yes yes so they were just i mean they had taken control and we were just trying to get these people out of there and just get the money and let them have it at this point they didn't care about the product that was it was about human life at that point and it was literally like just i was just jabbing just just kind of using it any way i could just to keep people off. And I think if you would go and you ask those people today, like is, if, if that is who they are, I, I mean, I think most to, to a person are going to say, no, nah, that's not who I am. Yeah. It was mob mentality, man. Yeah. We watched them. We were standing up there and they were, they had been doing piercing and tattoos at the festival. There was like a row of tents that were serving as piercing and tattoo and like some merch and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we watched it all come down, all come down, ripped apart, scattered. I mean, utterly destroyed. Well, the delay towers were coming yep. down. That, um, was, that crazy. was crazy. People, people, people were getting hurt. They were using the plywood, they had torn down the plywood first. Um, and then that's where they were surfing. It's you saw the famous surfing yeah. on the plywood. Then it became bonfires. And then they began just to burn everything because there was nothing left. There's nothing left to do. And it was at that point that they began to bust down the fences, the, the impenetrable walls to get out because I think people were, people were scared. Yeah. Man. I, I, again, were you guys scared? I was. I was. Yeah, I was scared. I mean, right, we I literally jumped and ran, like really mm. jumped and ran. And then you're sitting in there and 
yeah, you know, we're surrounded, but it's complete chaos. And you're like, how are we going to get out of this? And what's going to happen to us? How did you get out of it, Stacey? We actually waited it out. I mean, we just sat there for hours until I think it was kind of cleared out. And then um, I think my boss at the time, he kind of went out and tried to find law enforcement or security and say, you know, what's going on. And then he came back and we loaded two vans like they locked up as much as they could in the big mobile truck and left a couple guys with the truck and then just decided as a group we'd try in two vans to to get out and that's eventually how we got out but i remember that by the time we got out we were physically driving away because we were also flying out that day we were all scheduled to leave Mm. monday from albany it was already daylight by the time we mm-hmm. got like we're driving off of site. There, yeah. yeah. How about you, Mark? Were you kind of just locked up for the night and then they let you out in the morning sort of thing? Yeah. They let us out um, after they had swept the site. Of course it was, a, you know, an all night kind of thing. We had to bring, uh, we had hazmat came in the next morning because uh, the campgrounds were literally so bad that it took hazmat yeah. to go through and clear looking, looking for bodies looking for it because everybody just left their stuff and left. And then my team was instructed that we were, I mean, I was told very clearly, this is private property. Anyone on site caught with a camera, you are to take the film, break it, and escort them off the property. And that's what we spent the day doing. Wow. I mean, so, so as we start to wind down here, I guess because I know they wanted to do another another festival in 2019. Obviously, because it's the 50 year anniversary, Michael Lang is still alive. It would have made a great kind of fairy tale story. Was there ever any chance of that happening, or was 99 too too heavy? You know, because we're talking about people dying now. Uh, obviously, the sexual molestation is, is very hard, and then just the complete rioting uh, all across the board. Like when you say when they're when they're throwing down the the towers, I mean that is crazy. That is a thirty foot high tower. They're pushing it over. If someone would have got caught underneath, they'd be dead as well. I guess easy question. Either one of you can answer. Was there ever a chance that nineteen can happen, or was it just a romantic idea from Michael Lang? It was canceled two weeks before. I mean, they almost got it in. But when I heard it was happening up in Maryland, I kind of laughed to myself because I was like, again, you know, 50th anniversary. It makes sense. I didn't think it was happening because uh, and I don't think it's coincidence that the fire festival documentary was was right. Had just come out like everyone was talking about it. And all of a sudden Woodstock gets canceled. And. Did you ever hear the concrete reason why? Did any of us ever really hear why? No. 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 So, and, and my my thing was why now? Like when I heard that this documentary was happening, I, I my first question is why now? Why 10 years? Why not 15? Right. And why now? Why? Yeah. I mean, any ideas? Why now? No, it's it's 12 years though. So so why I was thinking the same thing. It's like it's not an anniversary of anything. It just came out. It's 12 years from 1999. Are they trying to... 20. I mean, there's... there's what's that? 20. 20. Sorry. 20, 22 years 22 since 1999. Years. 
So what's 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 the end game of that? I mean, obviously, it's not to try and do a new one because it does not paint a, a nice picture. Um, it, once again, it just kind of shows this utter chaos. And the way that the documentary plays off, it is very strange because they're neither fish nor fowl. I almost thought that maybe MTV was involved in making it in some way. Because the time how bad it was, you know, I don't know. What do you think, Mark? I, I think that, again, I don't believe a coincidence. Just, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. But I, I do think that there's some truth to the. When I looked at this and I, I went, why now? There is a 20-year statute of limitations on enforcing uh, court judgments in the state of New York. And I have to believe that there was a lot of lawsuits that came out of this. Mm, maybe, right. And suddenly right, the right. statute of limitations on being able to enforce whatever was done is up. I, I think that there that maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I, I don't I don't know why now. But certainly the 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 story that they told is is, you know, I'm kind of surprised it took this long, aren't you? They had all this amazing footage. I mean, look, everybody, I mean, there, have you ever seen a repeat of anything like that, of that craziness? That's a movie, man. In twenty two years. Well, and once again, once again, they had a little bit of an agenda. I mean, involving you know, talking about Lars and Napster, and like I didn't understand what that had to do with anything. But uh, I guess the final couple of questions for you guys. I mean, there's so much negative stuff that we're talking about. How just how insane and crazy it got. Uh, was there some positives for you guys that you see from 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 the festival? Stacy, you're yes. smiling. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking I have mine is festival related, but didn't happen at the festival, but my experience ended on a on a positive note for me we had made it out we were at the albany airport waiting to catch a flight we were having to connect through philadelphia and then to la sitting in that terminal and it was our whole crew and we're all beat and really because of our exit no one really had been able to shower or anything so that's how we are in the airport like that's what you get and the band live was in the terminal with us. They were on our same flight and I was sitting there and Ed Kowalczyk happened to be sitting next to me and we just started talking about it. Like, were you there? Yeah, were you there? And then, you know, just the conversation about we were working it. And as they were calling to board the flight, um, he hugged me and he whispered in my ear, we survived. <laughs> so <laughs> I just like thought, oh, okay, I have that. But um, but the, yeah, the beginning, like there was some great music. I mean, because while I couldn't be out in the audience, like physically watching, we we had a camera feed um, to the back so you could definitely hear it. And you could see if you wanted to in the middle of our compound, you could go watch screen. And there were some really great performances. I mean, I still remember being blown away by Seven Dust, who hadn't really mm. heard of at that point and thought, wow. Right. So yeah, I, there was some really great music that weekend that, you know, is getting lost, I think in all the surrounding chaos. In, in all the surrounding, yeah. How about you, Mark? I think it showed uh, promoters and potential promoters that there's a consequence to your actions. And I think that it was the learning of that in real time. I think it was the understanding of the need for attention to detail um, because you haven't really seen a repeat of that, have you? No. And and I believe that was the good in this. I believe that showing everyone that putting hundreds of thousands of people together 
has a consequence if it's not done right. Yeah, and, and it, it's I, I think it's funny too because I, like for me, like I said, being a 23 year old kid watching Woodstock '94 on MTV, like I'm not saying that's my Woodstock, but I really like I really enjoyed watching it. I mean, that's when the Peppers came out with the light bulbs on their head, and I think a lot of the same bands, Megadeth played. I think Metallica played it too, and and and. Uh, obviously, we talk about Green Day and all that sort of stuff. And I always had a connection to the to the '69 Woodstock just because it's Woodstock. I actually bought a piece of the stage that they were selling on Instagram just a couple a couple months ago. I guess they had taken the original Woodstock stage and made it into a racquetball court, and they actually had the you know the, cool. the certificate of authenticity and all that stuff. So it is such a part. It's like you know Hendrix played it and. It's kind of like the Beatles on top of Abbey Road. It's one of those things that if you're a rock fan, you appreciate. 99 to me was kind of the trying to fit the square peg into the round hole. I found because the 25-year anniversary was organic. Five years later, 30, whatever, it just seemed, okay, let's really start making some money off this. And it really kind of backfired in a lot of ways. So I don't really have a connection to it. But, but hearing your guys' experiences, it's one of those things where it's like, Fuck, man! What a what a monumental moment and and a historical festival. Maybe maybe only matched by Woodstock two and Woodstock one. Yeah, maybe. You know, I did for a while have quite a collection of radio station T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Not because of wanting to collect them, but because it was so hot and humid and gross that everybody was. <laughs> trading and giving t-shirts so that you could take off your whatever gross shirt and put a clean shirt on <laughs> during the day so <laughs> that was like a big thing like it was a joke about all the different because of where we were situated all the radio station t-shirts <laughs> we were taken to rooms and i would go into these rooms where the bootleg t-shirts were literally waist high you would wade through room after room. <laughs> Dude, I was picking, I mean, I, you talk about a collection of shirts, man. I've got an amazing collection. Not one of them's real, but, you know, legit, <laughs> right? But but to me, I, 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 but I, but what I came away with was if you'd have put the attention on the, you, you know, on, on the event, some of the details, like you did in trying to stop people from selling bootleg shirts, because, man, they had a force. And they did. They were successful at that. And they got those shirts and they kept them from selling. And I just thought to myself, again, it, it really did show, I think, promoters worldwide. Um, it was a valuable lesson. Last question for you, for you guys. Is there a band that stuck out as your favorite that you saw? I mean, Mark, Mark, I don't even know if you were able to see any of the bands, but uh, Stacy, or, or and if you did, what are the ones that stand out for you? Chili Peppers, I've always been a huge fan. So to stand out there, you know, before all the chaos was really breaking out, that was pretty amazing. A kid rock for me, for sure. Yeah, he put on a great show. I remember watching him on on the monitor. I hadn't seen him before. That that was amazing. It was a great show. And honestly, I, I just remember at that point in time kind of being blown away by Seven Dust, this band that I hadn't really ever heard before. Well, guys, a, a great uh, uh, trip down memory lane. Some of the memories you might want to remember and some you might never want to think about again. But uh, <laughs> like I said, one of the classic moments in rock and roll history and one of the classic moments on Talk is Jericho history where I finally got a chance to talk to you guys. It was awesome, yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks, for having thanks for having me. Thank you, guys. <laughs> 